What's up, guys? This is Jake J. Thomas of Jake J. Thomas Photo, bringing you another episode of the Dialogic Podcast. And today, I'm going to start a project that's a little bit different than just my freewheeling rants that you've grown to love. I'm going to do a little bit of reading and riffing. And I got this idea from Jocko Willing's podcast where he and Echo Charles will take a text, a poem, a manual, an interview, and they'll dissect it. They'll go piece by piece and read through it and then riff on it, talk about what it means to them, what they think it's important for. And today I'm starting with the first chapter of a book that I love. It's called On Photography, written by Susan Sontag. And it's a book from the 70s. Uh, The essays were written in 73, 74, and 77. And uh, since then, photography has changed quite a lot. The digital age radically revolutionized the way we take and think about photos. But I think in this earlier meditation on photography, you can see a lot of the important issues she lays out. So for any of you out there who are interested in photography, take photography, like photography, this should probably be a good podcast episode for you. So the first chapter is called In Plato's Cave. And what that refers to is one of Socrates' dialogues called The Cave. Or I guess it's not, not really a dialogue, but one of, one of Plato's writings. Um, Plato was a student of Socrates, and in most of his writings, he uses the voice of Socrates, and he creates these dialogues that explore different concepts But the cave is an allegory, and it's an allegory for the way that people don't perceive the truth, and then there's one guy who leaves the cave and sees the real world and comes back to tell everybody that what they're looking at isn't the truth, and they kill him. So I'm just going to begin. I'm going to read some of the first chapter and then I'll talk about what I think is relevant about it to today's culture and then I'll continue. So it begins, humankind lingers unregenerately in Plato's cave, still reveling its age-old habit in mere images of the truth. So like I said, it's that allegory talks about how there's this resistance to the true truth, and that instead there's just images of the truth that people are interested in. But being educated by photographs is not like being educated by older, more artisanal images. For one thing, there are a great many more images around claiming our attention. Now that's even more true today. You know, the difference between the photograph and the handmade image is significant, but 
What's more significant is the fact that there are so many more. You know, it's the mechanical reproduction of images through the camera proliferated the amount of images in the world. And then the digital revolution where we have a camera on our phone and Instagram to post it made that number expand exponentially. So that I think I heard somewhere they're saying that there's going to be a trillion photographs taken this year. So we're truly in an age where photography has has mushroomed into this megalithic, enormous entity. The inventory started in 1839, and since then just about everything has been photographed, or so it seems. What that refers to is 1839 is when Daguerre in France first came up with the way to fix the image. For a little while there, people had figured out how to create the image, but the image disappeared. And then through the chemical processes of fixing the silver gelatin, Daguerre was able to make the image not go away. And that's, that's really the beginning of photography. So when you think about it, 1839, not that long ago. You know, the United States is not that old, but it was already, you know, fully established. It's just 11 years before California became a state. So photography is a very recent thing. This insatiability of the photographing eye changes the terms of confinement in the cave, our world. So how does it do that? changes the terms because now we're flooded with even more images of the truth. She continues, in teaching us a new visual code, photographs alter and enlarge our notions of what is worth looking at and what we have a right to observe. What is worth looking at and what we have a right to observe. So how do photographs change and enlarge that notion? She'll go into that in more detail, but, you know, take an iconic example of, say, Edward Weston's photograph of a bell pepper. And, you know, there's so many different photographers who have photographed things that seemingly were mundane, but they pulled it off, they made it work as a photograph, and so it changed what we thought was worth looking at. Now, what we have a right to observe, the second part of that is interesting, you know, that comes into question the ethics of photography. What, what does it mean to be photographed in a state of suffering? Is that, are we privy to that? You know, William Ouija's scenes of, you know, death and crime. Is that something that we ought to see, you know? What, what do we have a right to see? They are a grammar and even more importantly, an ethics of seeing. So photography, because it proliferates to such a degree, it radically changes the amount of things we're able to, to study as a document, as a thing that's fixed, as a thing that exists in the world and doesn't change. And as a result, it creates a grammar, but also an ethics. So we get to see the structure of how things look, 
but also we have the questions of what do those things mean? What are the ethics of seeing? Finally, the most grandiose result of the photographic enterprise is to give us the sense that we can hold the whole world in our heads as an anthology of images. You know, and so take that to the present day where we have Instagram and people are photographing everything. You know, their food, their mood, their feels, their every single thing you can imagine is being photographed. To collect photographs is to collect the world. Movies and television programs light up walls, flicker and go out. But with still photographs, the image is also an object, lightweight, cheap to produce, easy to carry about, accumulate, store. Now, when we're talking about the internet, when we're talking about Instagram, again, that sentiment is just magnified and multiplied to the nth degree because you have the ability with the simple phone in your pocket to look at just about anything you could imagine. There are photographs of it and there are many photographs of it. There are hashtags with whole collections of photographs about anything you could imagine. In Godard's Les Carabiniers from 1963, two sluggish lumpen peasants are lured into joining the king's army by the promise that they will be able to loot, rape, kill, or do whatever else they please to the enemy and get rich. But the suitcase of booty that Michel Ange and Ulysse triumphantly bring home years later to their wives turns out to only contain picture postcards, hundreds of them, of monuments, department stores, mammals, wonders of nature, methods of transport, works of art, and other classified treasures from around the globe. Godard's gag vividly parodies the equivocal magic of the photographic image. Photographs are perhaps the most mysterious of all the objects that make up and thicken the environment we recognize as modern. Photographs really are experience captured, and the camera is the ideal arm of consciousness in its acquisitive mood. Now, with the phenomenon of Instagram, we have this whole other thing where there's different levels to it. You know, people are taking photographs of everything, but then there's also people who, you know, we have Instagram stories, we have live video, I mean, it's video and photographs. And in some way, does the digital presence of photography change what photographs are? It does, because now it exists in a more similar way to movies in that it, you can access it and then it's gone. There's something much different about a print on the wall. Let's continue though. To photograph is to appropriate the thing photographed. It means putting oneself in a certain relation to the world that feels like knowledge and therefore like power. So what does that mean? To photograph something is to acquire it, to know it, to have power over it. 
You know, I think that that's an interesting idea. But uh, this is where I think this book is important for the contemporary age because I think people are more interested in being photographed than in photographing. I think in some ways the photographer has more and less power today. There's more of a demand for photography, but because so many people are doing it, it becomes more about what the photograph is of and less about the photographer. Unless a photographer goes to some great lengths to make themselves relevant. A now notorious first fall into alienation, habituating people to abstract the world into printed words is supposed to have engendered that surplus of Faustian energy and psychic damage needed to build modern inorganic societies. So she's saying that the, the invention of writing is said to be partly to blame or responsible for the development of societies, of cities, of organizations, of people into groups. She continues, but print seems a less treacherous form of leeching out the world, of turning it into a mental object than photographic images, which now provide most of the knowledge people have about the look of the past and the reach of the present. Now that's a interesting phrase. The look of the past and the reach of the present. You know, we are able to see the way things were, we're able to see the way things are far from us because now we have access to this huge data bank, this massive collection of photographs. What she continues, what is written about a person or an event is frankly an interpretation as are handmade visual statements like paintings and drawings. So she's saying that writing is more interpretive like paintings and drawings and uh, therefore it's more innocent in a way because it, you, you can look at it as being subjective. You don't see it as being an image of truth. You see it as an image of opinion. Photographed images, she continues, do not seem to be statements about the world so much as pieces of it, miniatures of reality that anyone can make or acquire. So this is one thing Sontag stresses in this chapter and she stresses in this book. And I don't know if that's really her best point, but it's, it's an obvious point about photography that photography has more of a direct correlation to a kind of scientific factualness, a facticity about the world. A drawing is interpretive, a photograph is more indicative. Photographs, which fiddle with the scale of the world, themselves get reduced, blown up, cropped, retouched, doctored, tricked out. They age, plagued by the usual ills of paper objects. They disappear, they become valuable, and get bought and sold. They are reproduced. 
Photographs which package the world seem to invite packaging. They're stuck in albums, framed and set on tables, tacked on walls, projected as slides. Newspapers and magazines feature them. Cops alphabetize them. Museums exhibit them. Publishers compile them. Now, while all of that is still true, the huge difference in the digital age is that the vast majority of photographs are in your pocket, in your phone. For many decades, the book has been the most influential way of arranging and usually miniaturizing photographs, thereby guaranteeing them longevity, if not immortality. Photographs are fragile objects, easily torn or mislaid, and a wider public. The photograph in a book is obviously the image of an image, but since it is, to begin with, a printed smooth object, a photograph loses much of its essential quality when reproduced in a book than a painting does. So what she's saying is that because prints are fragile, prints are easy to lose, books for a time became the preferred, preferred way of collecting photographs, of storing photographs, of presenting photographs. But now, again, we have digital technology, so it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's websites, it's digital media. And when you do a book of photography, there's a photograph of the photograph. In other words, it's not a print that is being directly put into the book, but it's being resized to fit the format of the book. But now everything is resized to fit the format of computer screen or most likely your phone screen. And phones are different sizes, but they're all pretty small relative to a book. So this is something that has happened in the digital age that photographs are now being made to fit the format of Instagram. She continues, Still, the book is not a wholly satisfactory scheme for putting groups of photographs into general circulation. The sequence in which the photographs are to be looked at is proposed by the order of pages, but nothing holds readers to the recommended order or indicates the amount of time to be spent on each photograph. Now, that's also true with Instagram. While we have a timeline, we may have an album of photographs on Facebook. There's no way that the person who puts that together, whoever has the account, they don't get to say what the audience does with it. The audience can look at it for a minute they can scroll through, they can stop, they can comment, they can interact in other ways, they can do whatever they want, they can share, they can repost, but it's out of the hands of the author. So there's a lack of control there. She continues, Chris Marker's film. It's a French title. Brilliant, a brilliantly orchestrated meditation on photographs of all sorts and themes suggests a subtler and more rigorous way of packaging and enlarging still photographs. Both the order and the exact time for looking at each photograph are imposed. 
and there is a gain in visual legibility and emotional impact. But photographs transcribed in a film cease to be collectible objects, as they still are when served up in books. So Chris Marker, he also did the film The Jetty, uh, and he, he, he makes films about ph photographs, with photographs. And because it's a sequential, you know, series of, it's a film with photographs, he determines how long each photograph is to be looked at, what order they're to be seen in, you know, and, uh, but one, one wonders whether or not that is still a relevant mode today because people don't seem to like to be that level of curating. You know, there has to be some sort of big payoff for that to be the way that people experience photographs. Photographs furnish evidence, something we hear about, but doubt seems proven when we're shown a photograph of it. Again, she's pointing towards the credibility of the photograph as a representation of something true. She continues, in one version of its utility, the camera record incriminates, starting with their use by the Paris police in the murderous roundup of communards in June 1871, photographs became a useful tool of modern states in the surveillance and control of their increasingly mobile populations. In another version of its utility, the camera record justifies. A photograph passes for incontrovertible proof that a given thing happened. The picture may distort, but there is always a presumption that something exists or did exist, which is like what's in the picture. So in thinking about how photographs were used initially, she looks to how they've been used by law enforcement as a form of identifying criminals. You know, and again, that points to the indexing of truth, the pointing towards some sort of representation of reality that makes photographs different. Whatever the limitation through amateurism or pretensions through artistry, the individual photographer, a photograph, any photograph, seems to have a more innocent and therefore more accurate relation to visible reality than do other mimetic objects. Virtuosi of the noble image like Alfred Stieglitz and Paul Strand composing mighty, unforgettable photographs decade after decade still want, first of all, to show something out there, just like the Polaroid owner for whom photographs are a handy, fast form of note-taking, or the shutterbug with the brownie who takes snapshots of souvenirs of daily life. So again, she's saying that while there are varying degrees of success at this truthful or, or factual representation of reality, even when it's poorly done, there's still some connection to the real world. While a painting or a prose description can never be other than a narrowly selective interpretation, a photograph can be treated as a narrowly selective transparency. 
But despite the presumption of veracity that gives all photographs authority, interest, seductiveness, the work that photographers do is no generic exception to the usually shady commerce between art and truth. Okay, so here she starts to complicate her idea a little bit by saying that even though there is clearly something different about photographs than paintings, than writing, which are always necessarily, you know, subjective and selected out of the whole range of possibilities, while the photograph has a more of a direct connection to the world, there's still what she calls shady commerce between art and truth. So something is still happening with the photograph that isn't true. There's some sort of scam, there's some sort of hustle happening. She continues, even when photographers are most concerned with mirroring reality, they are still haunted by tacit imperatives of taste and conscience. The immensely gifted members of the Farm Security Administration photographic project of the late 1930s, among them Walker Evans, Dorothea Lange, Ben Sean, Russell Lee, would take dozens of frontal pictures of one of their sharecropper subjects until satisfied that they had gotten just the right look on film, the precise expression on the subject's face that supported their own notions about poverty, light, dignity, texture, exploitation, and geometry. So what she's saying there is like, take Dorothea Lange's photograph of the migrant mother, very famous photograph of a Dust Bowl family relocated to California in a camp without food in you know, extreme poverty. And while they went there with the aim of documenting a true happening, the way they documented it was full of aesthetic choices that they wanted to make images that were as powerful an expression of the truth that they saw. So there is some sort of contrivance, there's some sort of artificiality in the photograph itself because it's not just a snapshot, it's not just a simple document of what they see. They take great pains to make the most dramatic, expressive photograph about the subject that they can. In deciding how a picture should look and preferring one exposure to another, pho photographers are always imposing standards on their subjects. Although there is a sense in which the camera does indeed capture reality, not just interpret it, photographs are as much an interpretation of the world as paintings and drawings are. Those occasions when the taking of photographs is relatively undiscriminating promiscuous or self-effacing does not lessen the didacticism of the whole enterprise. This very passivity and ubiquity of the photographic record is photography's message, its aggression. So what I think she means there is that part of the, the truth of photography is the casualness with which it is able to represent the world and that that casualness kind of cheapens it in a way 
makes it aggressive, acquisitive. It's a form of hunting the world. She continues, images which idealize, like most fashion and animal photography, are no less aggressive than work which makes a virtue of plainness, like class pictures, still lives of the bleaker sort, and mug shots. So photographs that are, you know, like a fashion shoot, where every effort is made to create the most expressive photograph possible, are no less aggressive than a picture that's supposed to just be a document. This is as evident in the 1840s and 1850s, photography's glorious first two decades, as in all the succeeding decades, during which technology made possible an ever-increasing spread of that mentality, which looks at the world as a set of potential photographs. Even for such early masters as David Octavius Hill and Julia Margaret Cameron, who used the camera as a means of getting painterly images, the point of taking photographs was a vast departure from the aims of painters. From its start, photography implied the capture of the largest possible number of subjects. Painting never had so imperial a scope. So because of the facility of photography, the easiness, there was inherent in it a kind of ambition that one didn't have to spend 20 hours to create an image. It could be done in minutes. So that wildly expanded the range of subjects. You know, take that to the present day where it's as easy as pulling out your phone to get a photograph. And, you know, there's, there's nothing that's really impossible. There's nothing that's out of limits. There's nothing that's out of bounds. It, it all depends upon what the person wants to represent. Painting never had so imperial a scope. The subsequent industrialization of camera technology only carried out a promise inherent in photography from its very beginning to democratize all experiences by translating them into images. Now that's an interesting idea, to democratize all experiences. You know, er everyone who has Instagram can look at the, the same photographs. There's something about that that is more democratic than a painting that hangs on a wall in a home where only the owner can see it. She continues, that age when taking photographs required a cumbersome and expensive contraption, the toy of the clever, the wealthy, and the obsessed seems remote indeed from the era of sleek pocket cameras that invite anyone to take pictures. The first cameras made in France and England in the early 1840s had only inventors and buffs to operate them. Since there were no professional photographers, there could not be amateurs either, and taking photographs had no clear social use. It was a gratuitous, that is, an artistic activity, though with few pretensions to being an art. 
It was only with its industrialization that photography came into its own as art. As industrialization provided social uses for the operations of the photographer, so the reaction against these reinforced the self-consciousness of photography as art. You know, that's an interesting point that when photography became more mainstream, when it became more commonly used, that was when the idea of photography as art really developed because before that it was so novel, it was so new, it was so interesting, it was so rare that it was almost more like a scientific experiment. But then once it was easy enough to get a camera, easy enough to photograph, then, then people with cameras became concerned about making art out of photography. Recently, photography has become almost as widely practiced in amusement as sex and dancing, which means that, like every mass art form, photography is not practiced by most people as an art. It is mainly a social right, a defense against anxiety, and a tool of power. Now that, I think, definitely holds true for today. You know, so many people are taking photographs and so few people think of themselves as an artist with a camera. And, you know, they also think that the art is in the camera. A lot of these problems or these, these qualities of photography definitely still exist. And it's, you know, super interesting to, to really think about it. Okay. I think that's going to be it for tonight, my fellas, my friends, my ladies. Just wanted to give you a little sample of this great book. And I'll return to some more. But basically, the questions being posed in this first chapter are, what are the... What are the relationships between photography and truth, between photography and art? How is photography a different medium than writing, than painting, than drawing? What are its special qualities? How does it change the way people think about images? What's worth being looked at? What we have the right to look at? And, you know, now that we live in the world where there's a trillion photographs being taken, it's hard to even think about what photographs mean. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to take a little bit of time to look at this book, which probes pretty deeply into the qualities of what photography is, so that when we're looking at photographs, when we're taking photographs, we can be a little bit more conscious about what it is we're doing and what it's doing to us. So, that's it. Part one of On Photography. Part one of In Plato's Cave. And I will return to this subject. Now, I tried something new this week with my podcast. I haven't published it yet, but I'm going to this morning. And this is 
I'm going to uh, dig in a little bit deeper to some of what I was thinking about in the other podcast. So just to break it down for you, what I'm doing with the other part of this podcast is I'm reading and riffing a series of books that I think are super valuable to our present day and will give you some value. You don't have to be a specialist in any field to really take advantage of these things. You just have to be interested in digital photography, media, um, marketing, photography, art, culture in general. And uh, if any of those things apply to you, if you check the box on any of those things, then this podcast is going to be for you. Same podcast, just a different version. You know, these freewheeling rants that I do where I spontaneously come up with the material, although I've been thinking about it all week, ruminating on it, dreaming about it, working it through my veins and my sweating out the bad ideas and building up the good ideas with roasts and vegetables and all the goodness that I can find to put into my system, fresh water, etc. These are my favorite form of podcasting because they're unedited, uncensored, they're spontaneous, they're fresh, they're real. But I also have a background in literature. I have a PhD in literature. And so I wanted to use some of that in a context that might be useful to you. So um, I'm not going to get deep as far as literary criticism or scholarship about these books. But I am going to read and riff and hopefully some of the ideas will resonate with you and you'll find some value in listening to them. So this week I started to look at or listen to read riff on Susan Sontag's book on photography, which is a collection of essays that she wrote. And the first chapter, the first essay is called In Plato's Cave. And I kind of botched that when I was talking about it, when I was riffing on it. And that's okay, you know, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'll address those mistakes. And it wasn't a mistake, I already corrected it in the other podcast, but I just realized how rusty I am as far as thinking about Greek literature. How interesting it is that something that was written so long ago could be so relevant to today. You know, in Plato's cave is an allegory. Uh, most of what Plato wrote, Plato was actually a playwright before he wrote philosophical treatises, but he's best known for his philosophical work. And the most popular of those writings are his dialogues where he uses Socrates, his teacher, as a protagonist who gets into dialogues with other Athenians and they discuss concepts and come to no conclusions. That's the Socratic method is asking questions. And the more you ask questions, the more you realize there are no certain conclusions. 
But so she uses this frame, the frame of Plato's allegory of the cave to talk about photography. Now the main point of the allegory of the cave is that people are hiding from reality. People are looking at images of the truth, but they're not seeing the truth. And one, one figure in the cave leaves the cave, goes out into the real world and finds out the truth. And he comes back and he's killed. Who is this person? Was it Eddie Bravo? No, it was an allegory, so it wasn't a real person. But the symbol, the symbolic value of that figure is that people are living in a state of untruth. You know, and in this day and age, I think that's a very relevant, very important topic. What is truthful? What is real? What is dishonest? What is fake? You know, these are things we need to think through because very important decisions are being made at all times about the future. And we need to make those decisions carefully. We need to make those decisions based on what is true, not just on appearances of truth. But you might ask, you know, okay, so what does this have to do with photography? And really, the basic thesis of that chapter is that photography is a scientific invention that becomes an art form. And it's such a radically new mode of representation, a way of making pictures, that there's a tendency to see it as though it were scientifically true, that the images that are taken are factual and that facts are truthful. Now we live in an era where fake news has become such a widespread term that it's taken on some kind of truth. The idea that the news is fake is believed by enough people so that it is in some way true, you know? And uh, I was listening to the astrophysicist, oh shoot, what's his name? I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think that's it. Very, very smart gentleman talking to Joe Rogan and he was saying that there's a third category of truth. There's scientific truth, there's religious truth, and the third category is political truth. First category being something you can empirically prove and repeat through experiments. The second category being something that is not provable but is widely believed. And uh, the third category is something that is not provable, in fact, maybe able to be shown false, but through the repetition and the force of use, it gains a currency culturally and so becomes the effect of truth. But what she wants to say, what she does say, 
is that photographs are just like hand-drawn images. They're just like essays written out of words in that they're creating a subjective representation of the world. And one of the examples she uses is the Farm Security Administration photographs of Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang. And so I go into that a little bit about how the image of the migrant mother, while it is documenting a historical happening, and there is a factual element to that, the way she composes the images with the utmost of attention to the drama of the scene. And in doing that, she creates this layer of art, of artifice on top of the documentation. And that's what gives it its power, but that's what also makes it something other than a mere objective representation of what's happening. So that's kind of the basic thrust of that chapter of that essay is looking at how photographs are taken as truth when in fact they are stories. I had a uh, great professor of photography I worked with and talked a lot about photography with, Lewis Watts. And he used to say, a good photograph lies like a rug. And I love that statement. That's a beautiful statement. But <clears throat> I wanted to get in a little bit deeper to, you know, each of these essays is so dense. It's so packed full of ideas. And I was listening to myself riffing on them. You could do a whole podcast just on one sentence. And the one that occurred to me to talk about a little bit more in depth is one that's entitled, or one that goes, that photographs have, I'm paraphrasing here, but the phrase that is hers I will use correctly, which is, the the look of the past and the reach of the present that that was now how we were getting those things was through photographs and now i want to keep updating on photography to the digital age to our present day and thinking about the relevance of how things have changed and what that means and one of the main things i would say is that in some ways, we are less concerned with the look of the past than the reach of the present. And that probably has to do with how much the reach of the present has expanded. You know, not only are we taking so many more photographs, but we're putting them up on the internet at such a rate that there's a trillion photographs that are going to be published this year. And that's a wild fact. And that gives you the sense that there's so much out there to look at. But how could we even go back to the past? How could we even take the time to care about the look of the past when the reach of the present is so huge that it's, it's vast beyond our capacity to even deal with? And... 
photographs are how we learn the news, you know, and social media, social media is a combination of photographs, but also writing, also video, also art, and it's, it's fantasy, it's lifestyle, it's illusion, but it's also the news, you know, and there's still other forms of media that are relevant, but we learn a lot. We learn a lot through social media. It cues us in quicker. Things trend and they get to us very, very fast about the reach of the present. So yesterday, I did hear about something in one of the old ways, the, the first forms of mass media, the radio. I was driving around and I heard a story about Elon Musk's launch of the SpaceX rocket that they were going to launch it and land it. And I've been getting up really early, 4.30. I've been trying to get to bed a little earlier so I can get, you know, five or six hours of sleep. I'd like to be getting six hours of sleep, but that's hard to get to bed at 10.30. But I'm going to make it a priority. I'm going to make it happen. But anyways, I have been getting a little more sleep than usual lately. So I've been having these dreams. And last night I had this really wild dream about being on a spaceship, being on a rocket. And somehow dropping the ladies off to go shopping. And my dad was left to pilot the ship. And those of us who were still on the ship were, were a little nervous about that because we didn't know he didn't know how to fly a rocket. <laughs> what you doing? And all of a sudden the rocket started moving this way and that. And we were kind of like, oh, should we, <laughs> what would you do? What do we do? You know, and it, there was nervousness and it was like, we don't want to, hurt his feelings, <laughs> but we were worried he was going to crash the rocket ship because it seemed to be going a little wonky. And next thing you knew, he landed it perfectly on this little grassy median in the road. And then this morning when I got up and made coffee, I, I looked at Instagram for a second and I saw that picture of the rocket, Elon Musk's rocket, re-entering the atmosphere, headed to land. So I didn't even get to look at the story yet as to whether or not it was successful, but I just wanted to think about how there is this amazing interplay between social media, our psychic lives, and how the reach of the present keeps expanding. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. And is that a danger because we're losing touch with our history? Or is that a good thing? I don't have an answer for that. But I've spent a lot of time thinking about learning about history. And I find it to be valuable. I think it's a good way to ground yourself and to understand a lot of things. Like, for example... The use of media. 
we have a president who's in the White House right now who used Twitter basically to win his election. And a lot of people want to moan about that. They want to groan about that. They want to say something bad about Twitter or bad about social media. But if you really understand our history, you'd see that that is nothing new. And that radio was first used by presidents in such a powerful way. And at that time, that would have been seen in a very similar light, that radio was this popular new technology was entertainment it wasn't serious what was what was fdr doing with his fireside chats what he was doing was he was speaking directly to people in the way they wanted to hear he was using media that was popular during that day to talk to the people and i just think that we need to embrace that and that when we understand our history, we can see the continuity, the, the congruity, and the fact that it's not, it's not different. It's the same. You know, we had a president who was a Hollywood actor. We have always had this mixture of the popular with the political. That's not gonna go away. So as we think about the future, as we look at this vast, huge, expansive representation of the reach of the present, we need to arm ourselves with what works, you know, what's popular, because we're trying to reach the people. And so anyways, that I just wanted to take a little time to talk about what's going on with the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to continue with song tags on photography. I think there's a lot there to learn from, to think about, and it can help us all to become better, more thoughtful photographers, consumers of photography, and just thinkers in general. So thanks for tuning in wherever you are this lovely day, evening, night, morning. I hope you're having a good one, and I hope that you found some value in this podcast, and check me out next time. I'm going to continue on with Susan Sontag's On Photography. Over and out. Peace.